Welcome to The Lover's Hole. We are reading our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron series, as we make our way with Mike. And with Ian. Through Clarissa Oaks. Ian, can you update us? We just started a new book, this new book last week. Where are we? What might we expect to see this week? Well, Mike, last time we began this book, um, known to folks in the US as The True Love, we, we can debate that one later, with the surprise heading across the Pacific towards Norfolk and Easter Islands while Stephen recovers from that platypus sting that he had got at the closing of the last book. Jack was feeling upset, feeling that he'd been made game of by a young woman in Sydney, feeling manipulated in the matter of Padine's escape from uh, New South Wales, and also by the strange behaviour of the crew and the officers around him. And Stephen, called in to help out with this low grumpy mood of Jack's, had dosed what he called his botany bay liver, but to no effect. Going around the ship on a tour of inspection, Jack had discovered the root cause of quite a lot of these malaises, namely a woman stowing away in the cable tier. He then had threatened to maroon the woman and her suitor, this gentleman, Mr. Midshipman Oaks, on Norfolk Island, leading in turn to a big argument with Stephen. Now, that was where we left the previous chapter. Mike, this week, we've got Stephen practicing upon Jack, and we're going to hear a bit about what practicing really means in this case. We're going to have the return of Stephen's old friend, Laudanum, but with a new application. We're going to have the approach of Oaks and Clarissa to Norfolk Island, their threatened marooning, and a pursuing New South Wales cutter, which in turn threatens both Clarissa and Padine. We're going to get reminded that the community often knows us better than we know ourselves, and somehow new orders are going to arrive. Mike, plenty to go out here, but let's go back to the resources available to Jack. The, the Botany Bay liver diagnosis hasn't gone so well, but that's not the end of the medical story, is it? No, no, Stephen... Is, is really working on this thing. And and he's turning, as, as you kind of mentioned, Ian, to his old friend Laudanum here. Mm. But having remembered his and Padine's addiction, he no longer ships these huge carboys. He is now carrying just one very small bottle of Laudanum for all the surprise. And he disguised it and locked it away in an iron chest so that it won't tip. Padine. I almost, you know, can see Stephen, you know, giving an extra key to Martin saying, yeah, let's have a two-factor authentication on this stuff in case I get in a little mood myself. But he's taking the laudum out and he's telling Martin, even though it would be indecent to practice upon, and by that we, you know, we take them to mean deceive their friends, that they do deceive their patients all the time. O'Brien writes that they, you know, they're giving them strongly colored, strongly flavored, physically inoperative drafts, pills, boluses, in order to profit by the patient's belief that having been dosed, he now feels much better. And he tells Martin that what he's doing right now is using a very strong dose of laudanum disguised with asafetida and a little musk and not telling the patient who has a horror of opium what it is. And he's accompanying it with four pink chalk pills just in case the patient thinks they might be having a little trouble sleeping when they feel this initial stimulation of somebody who's not used to having narcotics. So Stephen believes that this dose is going to remove the patient's irascibility and allow a very deep and peaceful sleep 
2 encourages organs to functions unhindered as Stephen's original medicine does its job and restores his patient's former equilibrium. So mm. in case we're wondering, you know, this, this uh, mention of irascibility as a symptom clearly tells us that the patient being practiced upon is the captain, right? Yeah. And who would have thought it that Stephen, the opium eater, would ever think of dosing Jack with laudanum? But, but here we are. Maybe it's a bit of a sign of how seriously Stephen takes this disorder that's going on in Jack. Yeah. It works kind of. Under the influence of the laudanum, which has led him into a deep, deep sleep, Jack finally wakes up. When he hears the bells at 4.30 a.m., flings himself out of the cot, staggers dazed and half-blind to where the hands are gathering at the starboard chain pump. And he's clearly not entirely sure of where he is and who he is. Jack had prohibited Stephen from continuing to pump each morning, telling him that his hands must be as smooth as a fine lady's in order to take a leg off like an artist, not a butcher's boy. But Jack, for his part, had been joining them every day to pump out the water that came in through the sweetening cock. And he kind of spits his hand and steps up to the to his place here to join in the pump. One of the men observes that the water's coming out as clear and sweet as Hobson's conduit. And there's a slightly odd bucolic moment of Jack going, okay, stand aside, guys, I've got this. Mike, Hobson's conduit was a really interesting thing to dig into. I, I never knew, but Hobson's conduit, also known as Hobson's Brook, was in real life a watercourse, a man-made river built to bring fresh water to the city of Cambridge. Just a few miles from where I'm sitting was Hobson's conduit, which leads, of course, to this famous idea in the English language of Hobson's choice, the idea of a choice that isn't really a choice. You've got to take it or you've got to leave it. And this same guy, Thomas Hobson, who developed the, uh, the this conduit to bring water to Cambridge, had been in the habit of renting out horses. And the rule was that you could only take the horse in the stall nearest the door, hence... Hobson's choice. You can have that horse or no horse at all. And maybe, since Mike, I think it's quite unlikely that Jack Aubrey would have been right on top of, you know, ir irrigation innovations in the Cambridgeshire Fens in the, in right. the 17th century. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he's putting this in the mouth of Jack Aubrey uh, as a way of pointing out that Jack's going to be faced with some choices that are not really choices, perhaps coming up in this chapter. Nice. Well, Jack sees that they're drawing closer to Norfolk Island. He checks the log board. He asks Mr. West if any sharks have been sighted during his watch. None. He replies, only dolphins. Jack takes off his nightshirt, walks over to the gangway. And O'Brien tells us the sun is a fine, brilliant orange sliver on the horizon. But it's a sliver that you can only look at for a moment before your eyes cannot bear it. And O'Brien goes on and writes, a simile struggled for life in Jack's mind, only to be lost as he died from the gangway, utterly forgotten in the long bubbling plunge with his hair streaming out behind in the pure water, just cool enough to be refreshing. He dived and dived again, reveling in the sea. And once he came face to face with two dolphins, cheerful creatures, inquisitive, but discreet. So I'm just relishing this scene here. I, it's, it's not only beautifully written, it's our old Jack here for a minute, it seems like. You know, Stephen had been arguing with him about his temperament and his mood and his lack of exercise. You know, you're not diving, you're not swimming anymore. And here it is after Stephen's remedy, Jack is going diving, he's loving it. And then, and then we get this little cute thing about the dolphins, which sounds a little bit like 
I think we're going to come on to this later in the canon, sort of O'Brien's thing about, you know, you, you shouldn't be inquisitive. It's not a proper way to have a conversation by asking questions. Matter of fact, we might even see that in this book here. But yeah. I think Jack's the kind of guy that he would talk to the Dolphins, even if they didn't ask him questions. But luckily, O'Brien tells us they're discreet. They're not going to give away his secrets. And he has some secrets in this chapter. Yeah. And I get a little bit of a personal Patrick O'Brien thing there. He, he likes dolphins because, you know, they, they don't push this question. And that's the thing beyond the point of politeness. And right. we know biographically that this was a bugbear for Patrick O'Brien. He didn't like people being nosy about stuff and he would really resent it. Right. So he values the company of dolphins, clearly. Now, this bathing feels like a great thing for Jack. It's a very beautiful moment, as you say, Mike, beautifully written. Somebody's not happy about it, though. Killick has uh, decided to take against this. He reminds Jack that he'd been admonished by this other physician, Dr. Harris, from the previous chapter, the one who was talking about closing the pores and throwing yellow bile upon the black. And uh, Jack says to Killick, well, is high water the same at London Bridge and the Dodman? You know, talking about two very different places on the coast of the British Isles there. In other words, the advice that was fine for one place doesn't have to apply in another place. Thank goodness, because I think we were all shaking our heads a bit at the idea of Jack putting himself under the care of this Dr. Harris. So Jack dismisses the concern of Killix uh, and asks him to see if Stephen's available to join Jack for a second breakfast. And Jack confirms how great he's feeling at breakfast. He says, I slept well, went out like a light, missed most of the morning pumping. He'd loved his swim, it says, feels like a new man and invites Stephen to join in the swimming tomorrow. This is, this is all feeling great. After the big falling out, Jack and Stephen seem back together. Jack's back to rights, it seems, in terms of his health. Stephen is back to his traditional role as surgeon. Here he has to run and go and take care of a couple of cystotomy patients. He looks at Jack's tongue with what we see as evident satisfaction before he runs away and looks like everything's going well. Right, Mike? Well, it does. It does. You know, it's, it's Stephen is running away. You know, he's walking along the deck. He sees Jemmy Ducks and the girls coming forward with what is usually a froward goat and a cross, ill-natured, speckled hen. But both of these usually temperamental animals are just behaving beautifully in the hands of the young girls there. And Stephen thinks to himself, how well animals behave to children. Ah, you know, and anytime we have uh, an O'Brien observation of animal behavior, whether it's a, you know, a praying mantis, a rhinoceros, we know, wait a minute. Somehow this is going to echo back. We should stick a pin in that. You know, how well animals behave to children. Well, mm. Stephen's so absorbed in this thought that he almost misses Emily saying, Miss is weeping and wringing her hands way up forward. So it's not surprising to me that Clarissa Harville might be wringing her hands way up forward. We remember that Jack told Oaks to pack his chest and he told Stephen that he intends to put them out on this island, as you said earlier, Ian, in this argument, which no doubt was loud enough that the, you know, the entire folks on the quarterdeck heard that and it's been passed around the ship by now. Yeah, absolutely. And th this is an important point. Jack wants Clarissa and Midshipman Oaks to understand that this is the punishment that he has in mind. And I'm pretty sure from similar things we've heard about before, Mike, this would be seen as a just punishment in the Navy. It would not be disproportionate for this particular sin for Clarissa and Midshipman Oaks to be put on shore. Now, where they might get put on shore is the question that comes under consideration. Stephen kind of reflects on this and considers that the island, which is now, he says, much closer with these tall, strangely ugly trees, these Norfolk Island pines, 
And he's thinking about this when he hears Jack cry, Jolly Boat's crew away. And here we go with Jack putting what seems to be his intention into action. There's tension on the quarter deck. There are people on the quarter deck who don't like what's going on here, and they all look grave. They're looking back at the quarter deck. Martin, amidst all of this, tries to point out a Norfolk Island petrol to Stephen, and Stephen just gives it a, a passing glance. Jack, and this is public in view of the quarter deck here, Jack calls for Bondon and tells him to go see, to take the jolly boat into the bay and see if it's possible to land through the surf, advising him to pull in and sail back. And there's a very specific way that this is written about in the text. Jack and Bondon had served many years together. They understood each other perfectly well, and it appeared to Stephen that, in spite of their matter-of-fact words and everyday expression, some message passed between them. Yet, though he knew both men intimately, he could not tell what the message was. So, I wonder what it was that Jack was trying to communicate to Bondon. Let's kind of make, keep the tension going for a little while, Mike. Let's just stick a pin in that and remember it. I get the feeling we might be able to come back to it in a paragraph or three. Yeah, and, and you know, clearly, you know, there's tension all across the ship. I mean, everybody is watching yeah. this as it as it happens here. And as the boat leaves and, and it keeps sort of appearing and disappearing as it goes up and down in the waves, it says, you know, the whole crew is kind of looking out of the side, watching this thing. And Jack tells Tom that he wants the ship to stand off and on until the boat returns. And then, by the way, to take some soundings as they come inshore. And he goes down to his cabin. Now, Martin is telling Stephen how much he can't wait to go ashore and all the birds he hopes to see. And O'Brien writes, for once, Stephen found Martin a tedious companion. And Stephen's thinking to himself, you know, how can Martin not know what landing on this island would mean? And then he realizes, just like Jack was the last person to know that there was a woman on board the ship, Martin probably would be the last person to know that Jack is thinking about marooning this couple on the island, that Martin probably hadn't heard this threat. And maybe even if he had heard it, he wouldn't have taken it seriously. He wouldn't have thought that the captain would do it. But as you say, Ian, this would have been a very realistic scenario at this time. Yeah, absolutely. So with all of this going on, Stephen doesn't know what to think. And he's finding Jack Aubrey not his maybe customarily transparent self. There were times, the text says, when Jack Aubrey was as easy to read as a well-printed book, others when he could not be made out at all. And this formal public dispatch of the boat seemed to Stephen incomprehensible, in total contradiction with the cheerful, familiar, sea-wet Jack of early breakfast. And I think, as we're going to see, Mike, this is it's absolutely Jack's intention for everybody to go, wait, 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 hold on a minute. The captain's really doing this. Right. And Stephen continues to watch the boat. It goes past a sunken rock and we can see ugly swirling water. It reaches breakers and works along the shore. Martin, having not managed to wheedle his way into the conversation, has taken the hint and taken himself up to the mizzen top. And as Stephen watches, the boat appears to be in danger of being swamped. And so he's startled when Jack taps him on the shoulder and says, I've tried to hail you twice. Uh, looks at the dried blood on Stephen's hands, seems to be remembering that the cystotomy operations were in plan there, and asks how the patients are, and everything is okay. Jack says he'll go and visit them. And we have this little exchange now with Stephen checking in on the, uh, what you might say, the metabolic well-being of his patient. Jack tells Stephen in a confidential tone that he's been to the head, and Stephen asking for details gets the prudish Jack only answering, like a horse. 
as he walks off. Right. And, uh, there are still some things about people that only a physician like Stephen can get close to. Right. Right. Well, the ship turns to meet the boat. And Stephen stays right where he was when Jack approached him, when Reed approaches him with some water and says the captain thought Stephen might want to pour it over his hands. Stephen thanks him, washes the blood off as Bondin comes up the side and reports, no landing, sir, a wicked surf and a worse undertow, though the tide was on the ebb. Jack says, very good, and tells Captain Pullings to hoist in the jelly boat and make all possible speed on their former course since there is no possibility whatever of landing, says Jack in a very loud tone there here. And and so I think this is the point where we can go back and say, I wonder if this is you know what the conspiracy between Bondin and Jack was. Yeah, I think so. I, I wonder if there was there was a wink somewhere off camera, like you go in there and look like you've had a good look around and come out and tell me it's no go, and then I can have both threatened and reinforced my authority, but at the same time not actually have to carry out this really apparently very severe punishment of right. marooning Clarissa Oaks. And I, I, I wonder how long that's going to last for Jack in trying to cement his authority here. <sighs> but it's nice, though. Might we get echoes back to the uh, savagery of the... Uh, putting ashore of of Mr. Horner back on the far side of the world. And maybe that was in the back of our minds, but it seems like that that threat of kind of darkness and disaster is gone, at least for now. Yeah, it's it's gone for now. And, and you know, you kind of think to yourself, just when you think it's safe to go back in the water. Ah. So, you know, no, no sooner had we heard there's no possible landing than the lookout hails the deck. There's a four and a half sail sighted astern. Jack runs aloft with a telescope, but he can't see it. And Lookout can't see it now either, but says it really wasn't far off. And they'll be able to see her from the deck if it just clears up a little bit. And Jack tells Pullings to make all possible sail. You can kind of say it with us. We know exactly what Jack's going to say next. There is not Not a a moment moment to be be lost. lost. (laughs) Well, so Jack couldn't see whatever's following him, but he wants to run like the wind. This is fascinating here. Yeah. And you know, we had this in the introduction to the book, and we've had it a little bit reminded in the introduction to the paragraph. Jack does not want to be drawn back into the world of New South Wales. He knows he might be in right. bad odor for being associated with the escape of Padine, and now apparently associated with the escape of Clarissa Harville. And if, if the ship is an enemy, he doesn't want to talk to them. If the ship is one of His Majesty's ships coming out of Sydney and Port Jackson, he doesn't want to talk to it. So right. all is served here by keeping a rapid pace on. And as the jolly boat is hoisted in, Martin, playing the role of chorus, sort of expresses the naive disbelief. I can't believe the surf made landing that impossible. You know, surely, surely, surely. Uh, he, I, I saw a relatively smooth stretch just this side of the Cape and goes on again naively to say to Stephen, well, I hope you're not too disappointed. And Stephen says, if you were here to, to repine, that is to express discontent, um, at every promising island that he swept past, he would have run melancholy mad long since. And Mike, I, I'm kind of wondering here, I, I suspect from the tongue-in-cheek way that Stephen is brushing this off, that he kind of knows what was going on with Jack and this yeah. exploration. He consoles yeah. Martin. He says, we've seen mutton birds, at least, and we've seen monstrous pines, which Stephen describes as being the second ugliest vegetable known to man. And for readers who are wondering whether it's okay to still be reading these books without knowing period nautical terminology, we get some uh, some relief, some slack cut for us by Martin and Stephen. Martin says, why are the royals to be set 
flying, he says, having heard the orders of Jack to bend on all sail. He's been at sea so long, he doesn't want to ask anyone else and appear ignorant. And Stephen says, Martin, you lean on a broken reed. We are in the same boat as reeds so often are. Let us comfort ourselves with the reflection that not all of us shipmates could tell how an ablative comes to be so very absolute on occasion. And this is this is a very congenial little moment, Stephen. So don't you worry about this, all this stuff, Martin. You, you and me, we're, we're together slightly outside of this community of the ship's company. And th- there's a couple of nice things to dig into here. First of all, Mike, I, I like this little mention of ablative absolutes. And ablative absolute is a, is, a, is a construct in classical languages like Latin. And I think this is a little hat tip to C.S. Forrester. All those of you who are keen readers of the Forrester Hornblower canon might remember the scene at the beginning of Mr. Midshipman Hornblower where Captain Keen, Hornblower's first captain, pokes fun at him for his classical education and his youth. And he says, we have no use, Mr. Hornblower, for ablative absolutes in the Navy. And <laughs> my little little antenna twitched there where we got this. But the other thing we should dig into is Stephen's kind of passing reference to the Norfolk Island pine as the second ugliest vegetable. What, what might be going on there, Mike? Well, you know, it, it really made me wonder. And he not only says that this Norfolk Island pine is the second ugliest, but he, he names the ugliest, you know, a, another in the same family in Chile. Now, neither of these are pines. They are evergreens. And they're both beautiful trees. I mean, especially the Norfolk Island is is planted this tall, symmetrical until it gets really, really, really big. So people love these. I think, one, I think O'Brien was showing off just a little bit that, uh, you know, I happen to know the, the Latin genus of both of these things here. And two, I'm thinking this is Stephen saying... He had said earlier in the book that he really wanted to see this prodigious tree. And now he's kind of saying, no, that's the ugliest tree known to man. I think the thought that Jack might have marooned this couple on this island is Stephen saying, yeah, yeah, I don't want to see that. I don't want to be up close to that here. Just last chapter, he couldn't wait to find its prodigious beetles, you know, for Sir Joseph Blaine back home. But mm. now, yeah, Stephen no longer wants to have any part of him. But again, these are not pines. They're not part of the Pinus family. In one of these, the the one that Stephen calls the ugliest is the monkey puzzle tree, which is, a, it takes us back to this, this family name as well as a little UK connection here, right? Yeah, Orocaria imbricata, one of my mum's favourite crossword puzzle compilers in the in the British newspaper, The Guardian, had the pseudonym Orocaria, and it's a good name for a crossword puzzle compiler, somebody named after a monkey puzzle tree. Yes. So, there we go. <laughs> Anyhow, West thinks that he can make out this ship that's following. He thinks she may be wearing a pennant, which means she's commissioned as a man of war, and perhaps she's the cutter that they'd heard about. And Pullings gives us a bit of exposition here. He explains that this fast... 14-gun cutter called Eclair might be the one that's closing. Now, interestingly, Mike, I hadn't looked into this, but the cover art, the Jeff Hunt cover art for the original uh, imprint of Clarissa Oaks portrays this ship, the Eclair, on the cover of the book. And interestingly, she's holding down signals. Signals turn out to have been important in this little episode that we're reading about here. This cutter was coming up from what they call Van Diemen's Land, which is modern-day Tasmania. And Jack says, yeah, I've heard about her, but I don't see anything. And uh, right. he, he closes his telescope in, in a way that we might have to comment on it in a second. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack, having closed his telescope and said, I can't see the ship, 
sends the hands to dinner. And since it's Banyan Day, they're all going to be eating vegetarian. Banyan Day is a meatless day in the tradition of, uh, of the Royal Navy. It, it dates back, I think, to the times of Queen Elizabeth when they would economize on the cost of you know, expensive protein like meat and fish by substituting with beans and lentils and stuff. So Banyan Day means a meat-free day, and such a day is today. West says, meanwhile, he's pretty sure of the cutter. <laughs> he's going to insist on this. Here. He says, I'm pretty sure that I saw the cutter. I'm pretty sure that I saw her pennant. And Jack continues to deny this. He says, I can't see it. There's nothing extraordinary about a cutter being sent to Norfolk Island because Norfolk Island still holds government stores and people. And West says, ah, and the cutter's throwing out a signal, as we see on the cover of the book. I do not see it, said Jack coldly. Besides, I have no time for idle gossip with a cutter. And Davidge has twigged on what's going on here. It murmurs to West, taste, or you might say tache. Taste is the Latin for a candlestick, old fellow. This is kind of a commonly used phrase, that, you know, Latin for a candlestick. Before we get into the Latin, the thing that we're really seeing here is Jack giving us the Nelson touch. Nelson was famous for having put his telescope to his blind eye at the Battle of Copenhagen to be able to deny that he could see a signal from the Admiral commanding him to disengage and return. And he went, I see no ships, and promptly went on and was successful in his own right. But... Latin for a candle. I, I'm pretty sure that it, everything that I know about candles and that what little I know about Latin, there's no connection, Mike, or is there? Well, it's interesting. This this phrase came about early, sort of, uh, I, I think the first time it shows up in English literature is, is like 1676. But the idea is it's it, it means be silent. So taste is Latin for be silent. Candle is a symbol of light. The phrase means basically keep it dark. Don't throw light upon it. In other words, yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I think this is, you know, you know, Davidge is going on and on and on. And Wes is saying, uh, yeah, shut up. Captain keep doesn't want to hear this right now. Uh, yeah. Keep, keep it on the down low, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, Jax sends for midshipman Oaks and he tells him that he's pondering on what to do with him since women clearly are not allowed on the surprise. And he says that he's going to discharge Oaks in some reasonably Christian port in Chile or Peru where he can get passage home. And Jack goes on and says, you know, I'm, I'll advance you the money to get home if you need it. I'll provide a recommendation for you. I'm going to note your good and seamanlike conduct. And you can use this with any naval officer. And I think Oaks is a little bit surprised. I think we're a little bit surprised here. Yeah. You know, this is this is not sentenced to death on a Maroon Island here. Uh-huh. And then Jack asks if Oaks's companion, you know, put quotes around companion, is under Oaks's protection. Oaks says that she is. And Jack asks what's to become of her. And Oaks says that if the captain would be so extremely kind as to marry them, then she'd be free. And if the cutter comes aboard, ah, so Oaks is aware of this cutter chasing them now. And well, if that cutter comes aboard, they can tell them to kiss their, well, he says, that is, they can laugh in their faces. I think he realizes I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to the lower deck here. I'm talking to the captain. Yeah. Ah, now Jack says, have you asked her? Oaks says that he has not. And Jack says, well, go ask her now. And if she agrees, come back with her. Jack says it. One thing he will not have on his ship is a forced marriage. So he wants to hear it from her own mouth if she wants to marry Oaks. Huh. 
So, Mike, in the course of a few paragraphs, everything seems to have been put to rights. Jack's taken the laudanum, slept, woken up, pumped, swam, sunrise, great stuff. Bonden mimed going ashore to make sure that Jack's authority was restored. And now, meanwhile, Oaks is going to be fine. Clarissa is going to be fine. They're going to carry on ignoring this cutter. It's all going to be fine. But here we are, 29 minutes and 59 seconds into the episode, only barely halfway through the chapter. I don't think we're done yet. What's going to go on as Jack tries to get the ship organized around a wedding? It, 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 can that even be done at short notice? Is Jack going to go along? What's going to go on as Clarissa tries to take her place among the crew? Remember, we, we last saw her wearing midshipman's uniform in the cable tier. And just how solid is Jack Aubrey's authority now? Maybe we should ponder on these things as we take a short break. And we'll be right back in a few minutes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you've been having nice nuptial thoughts here. Uh, <laughs> certainly, Oaks and Miss Harville have. They come back panting into Jack's office. So I suspect they've been running all the way. And Miss Harville had fixed her hair, her clothes, and her face when Oaks had originally been summoned by the captain. So she's in a reefer's uniform, but O'Brien tells us that she's sitting with a straight back and her ankles crossed as if she were wearing a skirt. Jack says to Miss Harville that Oaks says that she has consented to marry him. And he says, may I take it that this is so, or is the fish wather to the, that, that is to say, or does he flatter himself? And so I, I think, Ian, what we've got here is is an Aubreyism, but also a Spoonerism, right? Yeah, absolutely. Spoonerisms, maybe all our listeners are across this, uh, where we switch the first letter or the first syllable of one word, named after a fellow called the Reverend Witch William Archibald Spooner, warden of one of the Oxford colleges, who was famous for switching things around. Um, you were fighting a liar in the quadrangle instead of you were lighting a fire in the quadrangle. So there is the fish, wather, is the, is the wish the father. That's a nice little Spoonerism combined with an Aubreyism there. Now, Mike, we've had loads of Aubreyisms, obviously. I don't know whether we've had that many Spoonerisms. It's the kind of broad wordplay humor joke idea that i think would appeal to jack but i don't think we've had many others so listeners if you can think of any spoonerisms that have occurred in the canon hit us up on social media go to facebook.com forward slash lovers hole or on twitter at whole lovers and tell us about your spoonerisms anyway mike back to the show well jack asks clarissa if she wants to marry midshipman oaks of her own free will. And she replies, yes, sir. And we shall be infinitely obliged for your kindness. Jack says, you know, don't thank me. We have a parson aboard. You know, he asks if she has any clothes with her. She does not. And Jack considers having Jemmy Ducks and Bonden make her a wedding dress out of number eight sailcloth. But then he thinks, well, perhaps that's not really formal enough. And he tells Killick to go fetch a bolt of scarlet silk that Jack had bought in Batavia. And I don't know about you, Ian, but I'm thinking, wait, a scarlet wedding dress? A scarlet lady? <laughs> Hester Prim and a letter A maybe here. You know, the color certainly oh. seems significant. What do you think here? It, it does. We very rarely get red colors. And whenever we do, they seem to have symbolism, you know, like the Spanish fly in Malta, like tigers in the jungle, like fire and sea snakes. So 
a red color seems like it's got some poetic power for us here. Exactly what it foreshadows and exactly what the consequences are going to be of Clarissa Harville making a dress up out of this scarlet silk. We're going to have to wait to find out. Yeah. And, and you, know, you can't help but ask yourself, too, well, well, this is silk that Jack is bringing back, presumably for Sophie, right? Right. So how is that all going to work out? Yeah. And Jack was thinking about Sophie just at the beginning of the book. Let's see how that works out. I'm pretty sure we're meant to not forget the Scarlet Silk anyway, one way or the other. Killick says, what? You want me to go in the hold and fetch it out? It's going to take too long. Maybe this is Killick just being a miser on behalf of Jack's property and saying, you don't want to give the decent silk to some midshipman and his wife. But Jack says, no, no, no. I know exactly where it is. He tells him. Turns out that Miss Harville is no kind of a hand with the needle. So Jack asks Oakes to have the men in his division, like Willis and Harvey, each sew a new sleeve to get Jimmy Ducks to do the skirt and Bondon to look after what he calls, <clears throat> with a throat clearing, the upper part, the bodice. And Jack, who's nervous around women, asks if Miss Harville finds it too hot with all the squalls that are brewing from astern, um, which can make it oppressive, he says. And Mike, I, I wonder if we're meant to believe that he's talking about the weather or is this another little bit of O'Brien foreshadowing, thinking perhaps about the impact of the cutter that's coming up from astern. Hmm. Good question. Clarissa answers very, very placidly in any case, it's such a beautiful ship, it is never too hot. And as the text points out, the words were idiotic, but the inclination to please and to be pleased was evident. The compliment to the ship could not go wrong. And Mike, there, I think we absolutely have to agree. Yeah. Well, Killick comes right back in with the cloth right where Jack said it would be. Jack unwraps it, takes off this blue that's around it, and then underneath is this heavy, discreetly gleaming silk, deeper than scarlet, extraordinarily rich in texture and above all in color. And Jack gives the bolt to Oaks with the instructions about who's to get involved, you know, all the people we mentioned earlier, or if there are any better tailors on the ship to, you know, get them working on it, and says, of course, there is not a moment to lose. Uh, Jack tells Ms. Harville he hopes he has the pleasure of seeing her at eight bells. Clarissa starts to curtsy on her way out, realizes how absurd it would be in, in her midshipman's outfit, looks apologetically at the captain and says, I don't know how to thank you, sir. Lord, it is the most beautiful, beautiful silk I have ever seen in my life. So we're, you know, even though we've got this cutter behind, I, I know I'm having a warm and fuzzy moment here at this point oh. in the chapter. Yes, and she's she's genuinely very touched. And like we said a moment ago, less than an hour ago, she was looking at being marooned on a desert island, and now she's got the opportunity to have to have a dress made out of this fabulously beautiful silk. Now, it, in case we got the idea somehow that this was all suddenly being improvised at a moment's notice, we get a little sign here of what's been going on before the mast. Jack comes up on deck and uh, is accosted by the bosun, Mr. Bulkley, who wants to know where the hands can hoist the wedding garland. And I'm reading this going, wait, wait, what? what? Wedding garland? So it turns out that standing right there, there are several men from Oaks's division holding up the traditional set of hoops that belong in a wedding garland with ribbons and streamers. And Jack looks at this. He's, he's a bit bamboozled, but he, he's a seaman, is our Jack, and he knows the answer. He says, hang it on the foretop gallant masthead and walks off thinking to himself that the garland was not made in the last half hour. 
and Jack says what we've all got on our minds, infernal buggers, they'd know what I would do, had foretold the decision, had made game of him. God damn them all to hell, he thought. I must be as transparent as a piece of glass, but without particular anger. And I have a hard time believing that Jack's really as okay with this as he seems. He thought he'd restored his authority and his kind of terrible ruling position as the ship's captain by this deal with Bondon and the boat and the island and threatening them with marooning. But it turns out that they'd known all along that Jack would cave. And not only that, they'd made this this garland with obviously great care and forethought. And I can't believe that Jack isn't really seething inside. But I think it's really funny as well that even with all of this anger in his heart, Jack knows you know, he can apply naval etiquette to figure out on which mast a wedding garland for a midshipman should go. He said, oh, foretop gallant mast. You know, if he was the commander, yeah, then a wedding garland would go on the main mast. But no, foretop gallant mast it is for a midshipman. So there's a naval etiquette answer in Jack Aubrey's world for anything. It is fabulous. I, I love that. Well, and then to add a little insult to injury, Jack walks along and sees Stephen teaching Reed an Irish wedding dance. You know, a very <laughs> exact one that Reed apparently has been working on for some time with Stephen here. And Stephen has just told Reed that he must not wave his arms or show any emotion, far less hoot aloud. You know, if you're hooting aloud like some people in some other countries do, I think <laughs> Stephen casting dispersion on our dear England here. And Stephen turns and says that the captain will tell Reed that hallooing as you dance is not genteel. Well, when Reed leaves, Jack says that he just cannot bring any news to the ship, that the crew had already completed the garland, you know, before anybody talked about a wedding, that Stephen is here teaching Reed a dance for a wedding, which was only arranged 10 minutes ago. And he suspects that Martin won't be surprised when Jack asks him to perform the wedding ceremony when Martin comes to dine with them today. Well, Stephen only says that he hopes that Martin isn't late because Stephen's belly fairly groans for food. And Stephen says, you know, I wonder whether that's the effect of the terror that's being caused by the ship who's flying a man of war's pennant pursuing us at the moment. <laughs> ah, and a subtle little dig by Stephen Matcher, and they're talking about terror and ship, uh, over-egging his kind of landsman's view of the situation, and invites Jack to walk straight into making a correction here. Jack says, of course, it's not a ship. It's a cutter, therefore clearly kind of lower in rank and status. She might not even be pursuing us. She might be putting into the north side of Norfolk Island. And Jack says, even though she might want to speak to the surprise, and she may well be wearing a pennant, we can safely ignore her. He's got no time for gossip, he says. I'll be safely ahead enough of her so that it's not court-martial obvious and he'll get to that point before nightfall. So, Mike, this is a fairly traditional Jack Aubrey situation here. I'm trying to keep a clean pair of heels going here so I can make it into darkness and then make my escape. Stephen asks if they can't outsail her or just run straight away. And Jack says, well, we could do that, but we'd have to turn tail before the wind, which would be clear proof of criminal evasion. And meanwhile, we're heading upwind. Every time we go to windward, the cutter comes one point closer because that's the way a cutter rig works. It can sail effectively to windward. If she's still there in the morning, Jack says, we'll have to stop. But by that time, Oakes's companion will be a free woman, he says. Martin having done business with Bell, Book and Candle. And <laughs> there's one, one last reference here to Bell, Book and Candle, which I think we covered last time is a reference to excommunication. I think that's all we're getting excommunication and marriage bundled together in his head here. Um, maybe two for the price of one. 
Yeah. And maybe, you know, maybe just you know, the way Jack talks sometimes, you know, he, he has these phrases, I mean, or maybe telling us that an excommunication might not be a bad thing at this wedding. <laughs> I don't know. Let's stick another pin in that one here. But Stephen, in a very low voice, you know, not wanting any of the crew members to hear, says, you would never be forgetting Padine, I'm sure. And Jack, smiling, you know, O'Brien tells us, replies, no, I am not. We have no Judases aboard, I believe, and even if we had, it would be a bold cutter commander who could find him in my ship. So Jack, mm. boy, you know, Jack, who was pretty upset about being manipulated in this escape, is now saying, you know, basically, Padine's under my protection. This guy's never going to find her, even if he comes on board with the ship here. Well, Jack looks at this cutter, the Eclair, through his glass. She's very well handled. He realizes now that she may be going even faster than the surprise and is indeed lying closer to the wind than the surprise. And her pennant is now quite certain. But Jack still thinks, well, she can't reach us before nightfall. And he does kind of admit to himself the likelihood of her running beyond Norfolk Island into the main ocean is very small indeed even if she was in pursuit of him. So I, th I think he's starting, his defenses are breaking down a little bit now. I think he also realizes that, yeah, and, and she doesn't look like she's really going to be turning into Norfolk Island anymore. It's clear she's coming after me, but she's not going to get us by nightfall. Yeah, very good. Now, Mike, this vessel HMS Eclair was a, well, was, there was more than one Eclair, as we learn. This, we think, in this book is a reference to the real-world French-built 14-gun dispatch cutter by the name of Eclair. He might also have been referring to another HMS Eclair, a, a schooner of 12 guns launched by the French in 1799, captured by HMS Garland in 1801. That's classic O'Brien timing there. Um, but that ship had been renamed HMS Pickle in 1809 because by then there was a new HMS Eclair in the Royal Navy, an 18-gun brig sloop. So between one of the three actual or previous or slightly anachronistic eclairs, there, there were enough s small sized dozen or so gun warships called eclair that O'Brien had a few to choose from here. Meanwhile, then Jack and Stephen continue their conversation on the deck and Jack remarks, I, I think quite approvingly about the power of a young woman that sits quiet, self-contained and modest looking down, answering civil, but not very much. A man could not speak chuff to such a girl without he were a very mere goth. Stephen replies, It is my belief, brother, that your misogyny is largely theoretical. <laughs> it is a good line. And Jack right. admits that he loves a wench, but he says, a wench in her right place. And I, I think Jack Aubrey's wrestling here. On the one hand, he can't abide the idea of women aboard and what they mean for discipline. But on the other hand, she's a woman. <laughs> right? Right. I think... Jack's, you know, kind of blustering a little bit here, too, that maybe there's a reason for having an exception for having this woman in because she's so civil and she's gentle and she knows her place. But I think he's prattling here because, you know, if we think about Molly Hart and Diana and Sophie, the women that Jack has really loved, that, uh, you know, Jack's never wanted never shown an interest in a demure, civil, knows-her-place woman. And, and he's lucky not to have, because if it weren't for his Sophie, he would have lost Ashgrove Cottage a very long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> ah, very good. So, Pullings, Martin and Stephen and Jack are dining together. 
Tom and Jack are trying multiple different ways to explain or to convince the others that a sailing craft that can sail within five points of wind, even at the same speed, will overtake another coming up only six points. And Mike, this is an exercise in geometry that, that many sailors have tried to explain to non-sailors in the past. But it's, it's, it's the, the puzzle of velocity made good. Don't get me started. Anyhow, uh. <laughs> Jack Jack has to lay it out on the table uh, after dinner with lengths of white marlin with pieces of bread and a dead weevil and looking at the size of the triangles and the angles and trying to explain it here. Stephen and Martin are finally convinced that just sailing closer to the wind does actually get you overtaking as well. Stephen's head, rather than his heart, having seen the surprise run down so many enemies of superior force, he kind of has to think about this. Martin is going light, though, on the after-dinner port to keep his head clear for the wedding service, and Stephen, who normally only attends funeral services, heads over to the sick berth to listen to more of the stories of Owens, the guy who we heard from in the previous chapter, talking about the fur and seal trade and all the islands that he's visited, including the Sandwich Islands, which he he describes as including Hawaii, but I think the Sandwich Islands pretty much were what we now call Hawaii, and Easter Island. Yep. And in, in, in typical O'Brien fashion, you know, we go on to the next paragraph and Martin comes down after the service is over. Yeah. So we completely skip the wedding service. You know, oh, we had one in Surgeon's Mate. We don't need another. And Stephen, you know, instead of jumping right to the wedding, says, you know, he's telling Martin how much he wants to see these large figures on Easter Island. I think we talked about them before, these big statues here. And uh, you know, and Stephen's saying, you know, I, I wonder how far it is. And Martin says, well, the captain said it would be about 5,000 more miles to go. But he had drunk so much at dinner that he, Martin, is not to be relied upon. And, and Martin's a little giddy here. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. So this is this is interesting. We, you know, we saw him kind of holding off on the port at the end. But now after he's performed this service, he's like, you know, kind of a giggling little boy here. Well, Padin had been very, very anxious ever since the cutter was sighted. And, you know, as as Martin and Stephen and Padin are kind of you know, leaving for the dispensary, you know, Padin whispers in Stephen's ear, you know, please not to forget him. And Stephen whispers back that he will not and that he has the captain's word. And then loudly to Martin, I think Stephen to sort of cover over this whispering, ask how the service went. And Martin says, well, you know, short of pitching and almost going over twice, so apparently, you know, Martin, as, as, as the ship was moving, almost lost his balance. He says it was just like a private wedding in a drawing room. The captain gave the bride away. The armor had made a ring out of a guinea piece. The officers were all there and they all signed it and made it official in the logbook. He said, but the bride had startled him by appearing in a scarlet dress. So at least we forget, you know, we've got another reminder here of this scarlet dress. Martin had not expected her, he had gone to visit her before the wedding to explain things, and, and he hadn't expected her to be literate. But he said, you know, that when on this pre-wedding visit, she was still wearing the clothes she had come aboard in. And I must say that although she looked very well as a bride, she looked far better as a boy. Her slight but not unattractive form gave me, if not an understanding of pederasty, then something not unlike it. And O'Brien writes that Stephen was surprised. He'd never heard Martin make such an unreserved and almost licentious observation. You know, perhaps now he was more medical man than parson. And perhaps, Stephen reflected as they rolled their pills and patting wound the bandages, that this was one of the effects of bringing a woman into a celibate community. 
So Stephen then recalls working with a chemist and having one drop of a catalyst dropped into a solution and that there are all these fiery particles started appearing all through the solution here. Stephen is thinking about this as, as he's talking to Martin here. And Martin says he wants to hurry to head for the party that's on the forecastle, especially he's looking forward to dances like cuckolds all awry and an old man's a bed full of bones. He says, we used to dance them when I was in school. And Stephen, I think, appropriately responds, what could be more suitable? So I think, you know, Stephen's pointing out some very odd choice of songs for a wedding party. And it's just like O'Brien, as we say, to give us these few scraps of details about the wedding in reported speech afterwards. You know, it's so typical, isn't it, Ian? <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Mike, th- this is the most dancing we've ever seen on the surprise. We've got crew members playing different instruments. We've got pullings pointing out to Jack that the men are enjoying themselves and isn't this great. And Jack's got a slightly cautious, slightly kind of skeptical note here. He says, let them gather their peace cods while they may. Old Monday, he's a dying. And just to quickly pick up on this cute little Aubreyism here, is a, it's a misquotation um, of gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time, he still is still a flying. So it's not rosebuds it's peace cods and it's not old time it's monday but anyway and it's not flying it's dying but apart from that jack you got it dead on um that's a poem dating back to the uh, uh to the 1600s robert herrick uh, meanwhile peace cods apparently means pea pods so jack is quite a few steps away here from getting a good quote but never mind we all know what he means continuing with jack's little observation to pullings here he says they will have a ducking before we muster the watch and O'Brien says they both glanced up through the cloud of sails at the thickening sky, barely a star showing through. But I am just as glad of it. That damned cutter will throw up another blue light in a minute, and we shall not be able to see this one either. So a, a, a neat little bit of catching up on the action here. The cutter has been throwing up blue lights more than one, it turns out, which is normally the signal to say, oh, slow down and stop and pay attention to me. And Jack has been ignoring those as well as ignoring the pennant and the signals and the sailing to windward. Now, before the rain starts, the clouds got so low that the cutter's third blue light can't be seen, which is exactly what Jack was hoping for, I think. He wants Tom to keep their sails up thinking that the cutter might well shorten sail for the night. Two absconders with no reward money and no great prize worth cracking on into the darkness for. Tom thinks maybe he might have come on for promotion. And Jack says, well, losing his rigging would earn him some harsh words with naval stores being so short in Sydney. So maybe it's not a career move. Jack thinks that with top gallants and royals aboard the surprise, he'll draw away from the cutter tonight. And then, without remembering to touch a belaying pin, and perhaps only to add someone on record for a possible court-martial in the future, Jack says, but in any event, I am morally certain that in an hour's time, he will put down his helm and steer for the north side of the island. Yeah, (laughs) good for you, Jack. I'm pleased that you're so sure of that. Meanwhile, there's a double lightning strike, and we know that that never happens by accident. And Jack looks at all the sails that he's all got up in this really thick weather, and we are all invited to think here, what could possibly go wrong? 
Well, at first dawn, the thump of a gun wakes Jack, and Reed appears reporting that the cutter is a half a mile on the starboard beam, has thrown out a signal, fired a lured gun, and lowered down a boat. And they can't read the signal, but it contains the words, it appears, governor and dispatches. Jack has pullings prepared to receive them, and he notices that they, they seem to be whipping lots of things down into the boat that they're bringing in, lots of you know big bundles and packages and things. Jack goes to tell Stephen, and he says, well, you know, you can call me Jack Pudding, meaning, you know, call me a fool, but that cutter is alongside, you know. And so he's warning Stephen, and he tells Bondin to go stow Padine, meaning to, you know, you go hide yeah. Padine. And, and you know, O'Brien tells us that Jack and Bondin have, have wrestled sailors out of all kinds of, of uh, ships when they're pressing. And so they know where everybody hides, and they know where people won't look. So he yeah. thinks that that'll be safe here. So the Claire's commander, Mamullen, and a midshipman come aboard with dispatches at, that the governor commanded Mamullen to personally deliver to Captain Aubrey. So, hmm, mm. that, you know, I wonder what that is. But yeah. it is, you know, it kind of looks interesting that they brought apparently a big set of packages, not a, you know, a, a big search crew with guns here or, or sulfur burning for the ship here. Mamullen reports that they've brought with them a huge quantity of mail that arrived for the surprise in two ships right after the surprise had sailed. Jack invites the captain to breakfast, Mamullen accepts, and his sullen face now beams like the sun, O'Brien tells us. Mamullen meets Stephen, and he you know, shakes his head really heartily. He looks all around the cabin, and he tells him how much he's longed to be aboard the surprise for so long and to meet her surgeon because his father, John Mamullen, was the surprises surgeon in 1799. And then they yeah. all are, you know, now everybody's in love with each other. This is a, they are exchanging compliments about the surprises cutting out of the Hermione and how much his father admires Dr. Matron and his book, The Diseases of Semen. Now, Mamullen says, I've got to leave in 30 minutes. I've got to get back and get back to uh, New South Wales. But would you be so kind enough to have a midshipman show me around? You know, I'd love to see the sick berth and the tops and the fighting quarters, the places that my father had told me about. And Jack has Oaks show him around. So how, you know, boy, once again, you know, like like the you know, Norfolk Island, boy, what this peril has turned right around here. And there's a nice real world connection here. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about investigating the the documents and dispatches and books that relate to the real world underpinnings of the the stories of the book. Here, here's another one that we could perhaps have dug into if we'd uh, if we'd had it on our list at the time. This guy McMullen had led the first boat of the second division in the real action to attack Hermione. And this attack had taken place from the surprise commanded by Captain Edward Hamilton. McMullen was singled out in Hamilton's victory dispatch and later received a, a commemorative sword presented by the officers of the surprise. There's no specific record of a son serving later as a Royal Navy officer, but there were two different lieutenants, Mamillion, I think, a different spelling from Mamullen at the time of the novel. And we get that from the great resource of the POB muster book. So might might yet another really engaging little real world connection here. The thing that we might all have missed though, if we weren't paying attention, is that besides the orders and dispatches, McMullen had been bringing mail. And for how many chapters of how many books now have Jack and Stephen been hanging out for some mail, some news from home? 
And the same goes for all the other members of the crew as well. Right. Jack grabs the mail sack, grabs his mail, especially letters from Sophie, and hands over to Adams for Adams to distribute the rest of the mail to the crew. He notices large corded trunks of legal papers. And heading into his cabin, Jack opens the first package that he gets to, a waxed sailcloth package, with three large admiralty enclosures there for Stephen and a cover letter from the governor. Having taken care of all of that official business, duty done, he turns to Sophie. And we learn that Sophie has got the good habit of a naval wife of numbering her letters so that he knows in what order to go ahead and open them. And he gets on reading about his children's education, some notes actually written by the children for him. He stops smiling when he reads in Sophie's letters about Diana. And this is the part where our hearts kind of harden a little bit inside us. We think, what on earth is going on here with Diana? And it's even more agonizing, I think, that we're learning about this potential problem with Diana in Jack's reading of Letters from Sophie. And that already sets us on edge thinking, what's what's Stephen going to be thinking about? What's he going to be learning? Sophie's reluctant to say anything disagreeable about anyone. So it's hard to understand what she's saying about Diana and Jack can't really make sense of it. So he put down the letters to say goodbye to McMullen. McMullen gives Jack joy of what he calls the finest sixth rate he's ever seen, finer than even his father's descriptions before speeding off to see his girl in the Sydney suburbs. Ah, we've all been there. Anyway, a, a nice little nudge from Patrick O'Brien about the influence of women on officers' duty, and we might get the chance to revisit that theme later on. So meanwhile, Jack goes and joins his officers in the great cabin, hands out their mail, tells them Mr. Oakes is going to leave them in a convenient South American port, since the surprise is a ship that carries no wives. But until then, Mr. and Mrs. Oakes, she now being named Clarissa Oakes, as the title of the book requires, are to be treated by all hands with the respect of anyone who walks the quarterdeck. And he invites all the officers to dinner with the Oakses. Now, Mike, we're going to get the chance to dig in here to some more of these dispatches. What are we going to learn about from the letters from home and from these orders and dispatches? Well, it's interesting. Jack goes back to read some more, and he realizes that what he thought was the governor's cover letter is a very large envelope. And he thinks, well, you know, I... I I just thought it was him sending his compliments. I better have a look at that. And he finds out that it contains orders, orders from the governor. So it says that on the island of Moahu, south of the Sandwich Islands, that there's a war in progress between the queen of the southern part and a rival in the north. Uh, As part of this war, British ships have been detained. British mariners have been abused. And Jack's mission is to determine which side should win and support them if they'll accept British sovereignty, since Jack's ship can decide the issue between these two sides here. Uh, He's also supposed to get the British ships and the crews released and, you know, make sure to safeguard the island for British trading because it's, it's an important piece in their routes to Canton and Korea and Japan. And the orders go on kind of written very quickly at the end to provide a colonist's list of the benefits of British protection. They mention things like a settled administration, superstitious, barbarous customs, undesirable practices, medical instruction, enlightenment, 
missionary stations, commercial yeah. development. <laughs> and so I, th- I think we're all reading these going, yeah. And, and the last part, uh, which was especially written in haste and then crossed out, says something about the ends justifying the means. Oh. And, and Jack kind of notes that the way they've crossed this out kind of gives them what he calls a ghostly emphasis. So Jack, of course, alters course for Moao. And let's just reflect here. Jack was probably hoping at some point, having got past Christmas and Easter Island, to head down. Where was he going again? South America? South of the equator? That, we're going further and further north. We're going up to the equator. We're going to this place called Moahu, a fictional island in the uh, the Tom Horn mapping project somewhere south of Hawaii, known at the time as the Sandwich Islands, on harbors and high seas, the Dean King book, also marked out as somewhere south of the Sandwich Islands. So there's no way we're getting in at any time in a hurry to South America. Moahu seems like it might have been a combination of Maui and Oahu. It might, might have been a combination of the names of two of the bigger islands in Hawaii. But Hawaii, as, a, as an archipelago, wasn't named that way back in these times. As we say, it was the uh, Sandwich Islands. Google tells us and shows us that it's the only United States state flag to include a foreign country's national flag. It's um, red, white, and blue horizontal stripes in the style of, in the pattern of the stars and stripes, but in the hoist instead of the the field of stars, we've got the Union Jack there. So there you go. This was clearly long before American colonization of and command of the Pacific. This was a time when all these Polynesian islands were more or less colonized by the British and the French and maybe occasionally the Dutch. Anyhow, This is all very fascinating. Meanwhile, the guests gather for dinner in the great cabin and Martin tells Stephen that he's sorry to be missing out on Easter Island. And again, Stephen's phlegmatic about this. He says, it's just one more disappointment in a radically miserable life. And he's kind of laying it on thick here. He hopes, though, that they'll find interesting birds on this island of Moahu. And Martin says that Stephen will soon have the pleasure of seeing Mrs. Oakes in her remarkable scarlet gown. And... Yes, he may well hope, but he's going to be disappointed. Mrs. Oakes shows up wearing a blue dress made from the material that had been wrapping the outside of this bolt of scarlet silk. So great ingenuity and improvisation on the part of Mrs. Oakes and all the people who are helping her with her wardrobe for the day here. They're seated at dinner. Mrs. Oakes, the bride being now the most important person in the retinue, sits at Jack's right hand. And Jack tells her about the visit from the captain of the Clare, whose father had served in the surprise in 1799 during the surprise's famous action in Puerto Cabello. Mrs. Oakes had never heard of the action, but she says she's been fascinated by naval actions ever since she was a child and asked the captain to please tell her about it. Well, Jack tells her the story while filling her glass repeatedly and by repeatedly telling Martin along the course of the story that the bottle stands by him. So we're, we're keeping the liquor flowing pretty hard here. The story goes that boat crews from the Surprise, which had 28 guns and 197 men and boys, had cut out the Hermione, which was a 32-gun frigate with 365 men, you know, from this Puerto Cabello on the Spanish main. It had been there lying in between two Spanish batteries at the mouth of the harbor, and that Captain Hamilton actually filling all of his boats could only take 103 men in these six boats in two divisions, one led, as, as we heard earlier, in by the surgeon, McMullen. Yeah. Each boat had a specific task, but as they got closer 
to the Hermione, they were spotted by two gunboats about a mile out. Hamilton cut the tow, dashed for the Hermione, expecting all the other boats to follow him. But several of these boats decided they wanted to go take on these Spanish gunboats. So Hamilton and his crew boarded alone. They met violent resistance heading for the quarterdeck. The surgeon with the gig's crew boarded on the larboard bow and went to the gangway rather than the planned quarterdeck rendezvous. So Hamilton, at this point, is now alone on the quarterdeck and gets knocked down by four Spaniards. Some surprises ran aft, rescued him right before the Marines came aboard, you know, yet another boat here, fired down the hatchway and charged with fixed bayonets. But finally, the bower cable is cut and some of their boats are towing, they loosed the foretopsail and stood out to sea. The battery fire was ineffective. The Spaniards in this action had 119 killed and 97 wounded, while the Surprise had no one killed and 12 wounded. Captain Hamilton was knighted, and the Surprise was nearly always allowed a third lieutenant after that action as an unofficial customary indulgence. So, great story about this great character in these great novels, The Surprise. You know, Clarissa Oates soaking this in, Jack delighted to tell it because The Surprise is now his, right? And very smart move of her to say, please tell me the story because we get, I mean, we've had this reference to The Surprise and the Hermione quite a few times in the past. This is the first time we've heard it described in detail. It's got tones of Cochrane to it. It's got tones of classic Jack Aubrey cutting out expeditions. It's got Tones, I think, of uh, Lord Clonfort as well and some of the stuff that went down in the Mauritius command, you know, people misunderstanding what was to happen during a cutting out expedition. So we get a little real world nugget of classic Patrick O'Brienism there. It's great stuff. Clarissa then claps her hands and cries out, what a famous victory it must have been. Jack is very happy to serve her food. He fills her glass, upbraids Martin, says the, the bottle stands by you. And then ask Stavage to continue the dinner by telling the story about the amethyst and the thetis. So another anecdote begins. And as the dinner progresses, one victory story follows another. Jack fills and refills his guests' wine glasses. And Clarissa, perhaps feeling the high tide rising here of, of wine aboard her ship, right. quietly asks Reed whether ladies retire at naval dinners. Now, it's interesting that she's kept to the table here. We heard from Neil Buttery a few weeks ago that it was a, a bit of a social trend here to, for in mixed company to try and keep the ladies at the dinner table for a little while longer because it moderated the kind of outrageous behavior of the men. But at some point, it was certainly traditional for the ladies to withdraw. And Clarissa is wondering whether the time might be about now. Reed says, well, yes, the ladies do withdraw after we have drunk the king. And they are pleased to drink that toast sitting down, as we know. Um, She says she's not sure she can hold out until then, bless her. And unlike her new husband, who's too talkative, she's still upright. She's steady. She's hardly flushed and by no means too talkative when, as we hear in the text, the port came round and Jack, with a formal cough, said, Mr. Pullings, the king. Madam and gentlemen, said Pullings, the king. Well, sir, said Clarissa Oakes, turning to Jack when she had done her loyal duty, that was a delightful dinner. And now I shall leave you to your wine. But before I go, may I too give a toast to the dear surprise and may she long continue to astonish the king's enemies. End of chapter two. Wow. 
Yeah, and Mike, what a nice coincidence in time. You and I are sitting here uh, about a week after the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, about a couple of weeks after the accession of our new king here in the UK. So we get a chance to say, God save the king, if that's your particular flavor of port, which it may not be. And really deft performance by Clarissa asking for the naval stories, encouraging the seamen, carefully managing the moment of her departure in amongst the drinking, and that very very polite and solicitous toast uh, to tribute uh, to the surprise. She's quite a smart woman, and she can handle herself in a social situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you, Ian. I'm thinking, you know, here's this convict, you know, escaped convict from New South Wales, and boy, she's, she's either quite the lady or quite the con artist or something. I mean, because she is like on point every time here. Amazingly so. Indeed. And we've been kept on the edge of our seats, not knowing what's going to happen with Oaks and Carissa. It, it turned out it was only a small amount of storied real estate. Like it was only from the end of chapter one until two thirds of the way through chapter two. But boy, were we kept on the edge of our seat. Right. That we've had the, t- with the tension as well with the cutter and with Padine at risk of being captured. And now we've got real orders. And Mike, I said at the end of chapter one, oh, it feels like we've got a story. But O'Brien's given this a twist. And now we've got another layer of the story. We've got Clarissa Oaks aboard. And we're off to an island threatening insurrection. Yeah. You can't help but wonder. You know, we've, we've seen this theme before, right? Pick the best side of the warring factions, right? We've, we've seen that before. So is yeah. that what this book is going to be about? Is Clarissa Oaks what this book is going to be about is the true love, whatever the true love is, what this book is going to be about. Or does Patrick O'Brien have something else waiting for us? Is, is this another delay on the, <laughs> on the trip to South America? And will we finally get somewhere, as Jack said, you know, in South America where you can drop off the newlyweds? I don't know. I guess there's just, what, one thing for it, right? You're absolutely right, Mike. So what do you say then next week to just a little more Patrick O'Brien? No, I should like that of all things. She's a woman. She's oh oh hold on, Mo Mo says yes, but she can't be on board, Dad. That's yeah, not on Jack's ship. There we go. Good job, Mo. There you go, Sam. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>